ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the evening show. I mean, think anything like exciting happened in my life or anything like that since the last time I talked to y'all? Not really. Not really. I will tell you this, though. I would like to reiterate to all the people I said this to before who do not know this. There is no more miserable place in the world when it rains in New York City. Yo, man, they were showing stuff. I was looking at stuff on Twitter yesterday. Man, people were getting out the train. And it was like a flash flood. They was getting out the train. It'd be like torrential downpour in the train station. It was like a horror movie flooding in the train station. Now, you can make the argument you get what you pay for for $121 a month. Damn, dog. Like, I, I don't find the subway service to be nearly as infuriating as other people do. I just very rarely have problems with the subway when I'm on it in terms of service. The stations are indispensable, though, right? They, I mean, they basically look at it like on the station, like, well, if you don't think that our stations are nice enough, you can just go ride somebody else's subway. And they know you can't go ride nobody else's subway. So them stations, man, they don't do nothing to them, nothing at all. Ain't no time, no cleaning crew. In fact, think about that for a second, man. When was the last time you saw a cleaning crew or any evidence of such as subway station? Like, when was the last time you went to a subway station, the subway station was cleaner than it was the last time you went in there? Like, I feel like basically all these subway stations are doing is just gradually getting dirtier every day. Every day throughout life. That's all they do. That's it. Let me tell you about the cab driver, bro. So, I got off work and I wasn't really feeling so confident in the power of my umbrella. So I decided I was going, you know, do the ride sharing thing, man. So I hit the ride sharing app. That bad boy was talking about way too much for way too short of a trip. I just wasn't, okay, that's not true. I wasn't doing it. I did do it. I went ahead and I hit the button. But then right after I went ahead and um, I hit the button, I saw a cab. I went, no, I saw the cab first before I hit the button. Dude was just parked. He had his light on. Man, I went over because it was raining. I got in the car. Homie told me no. Yeah. Homie told me no. And this is after I decided to get the cab because I was going to try to walk, but I couldn't get my umbrella to stay open. So another cab pulled up. I got to stand in the rain again to get this cab because, as I previously stated, my umbrella wasn't working. Would you believe this dude had the nerve in the rain? to roll his window down and ask me where I was going. But the first thing you need to understand is that ain't really legal. They got videos that play in the back of the taxi that tell you that that bad boy got to take you anywhere you want to go within the five boroughs and Westchester and the Newark airport. I think they got to take you to some of Long Island too. Like they know what they know what they got to do, bruh. I'm standing in the rain. This guy asked me where I'm going, and I'm going uptown. I don't know what his uptown, like, radar is. You know what I'm saying? So I tell him where I'm going. He's like, oh, okay, you can get it. Are you serious, bro? Are you serious? This is the most miserable place in the world with the rain. This is the thing about New York. This is, this is different than any place that I've lived, and I feel like it's much different than most places that people live. You tell me if I'm wrong. The thing about living in New York is that when it rains or when it's hot, you in it. There ain't really no way to escape it. 
Like when it rains, wherever you are, you run to your car. Maybe you're lucky enough to have a garage, but you run, you jump in that bad boy, you drive it where you go and you park it. You might have to run again through the rain or whatever. Or if it's hot, you know, like you try to start your car a little earlier so you can get that AC blowing before you jump in it. But you get in your car and you get to wherever it is that you're going. And then that's that. That ain't what it is here. When it's 100 degrees here, there's a good chance you got to walk five blocks to get to the hopefully air-conditioned subway. Hopefully. And it's concrete. Everywhere you look, it is concrete. Yeah, man. Anyway, let us move on to your question. Hmm. Hey, we can use some more questions, folks. I understand I showed up late, so it's kind of my fault, but still. Is concept of guilty pleasures in music something that people tend to be needlessly shamed for? And, you know, that really all depends on what the guilty pleasure is that we are talking about. I really don't have a lot of musical pleasures that I'm guilty about. I also don't really have a problem admitting if I like something that isn't necessarily, like, very good. For example, that My Neck, My Back song. It is not a very good song. I remember how much I hated it when it first came out. And then I remember the first time that I heard it at the club, and it kind of became my jam. And I am not guilty for the fact that it kind of became my jam, because if you've seen what it did to the flow when it went on, there was no level of guilt that you needed to have, baby. You didn't need it. That song smoked them out. I mean, it let you know what, let you know what the score was. I ain't going to feel guilty about that. Now, that being said, I saw somebody make some mention to the fact that I think we're coming up on uh, – we're not too far removed from, like, 20 years since that first Britney Spears album came out. And if that's your jam, I see why you feel guilty about that. I really do. They could have found literally any other woman on earth to do what was on those records. Now, to do what was in the videos, that's a whole different discussion. But what was on those records, anybody could have done that. Anybody at all. Like, if that is your jam, I kind of see why it is that you feel guilty. Um, there's a few other things that go in that direction. This is what I would say myself personally when it comes to that. And as I say, I don't have many things I feel guilty about feeling any measure of pleasure about. Um, you got to be real with yourself about whether or not you just into whack shit. You know, like some people are just into whack shit. You know, now, if you feel guilty about the fact that you into whack shit, I think you need to break free from that. Like, that's what you are. That's what you're about. Like, basically, when it comes to music, you're a wino. But I've always raised the question, who loves wine more? A wino or a connoisseur? Because connoisseur out here judging wine. Kind of so I here need wine to be up to a standard. Wine will love you just the way you are, no matter what kind of bottle you came out of. Wine will feel you on that. And maybe that's what it is. You, when it comes to the music, are the wino who actually, when it comes down to it, loves wine 
more to that hoity-toity dude that's sitting at the table, like, gargling that shit before he, you know, finally decides whether or not he wants a full glass. You know? So maybe you like your music, a la Wine Out the Box. Okay. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else we got here. Any words for Faith Evans' revelation? Okay. So... For those of you who are unaware of Faith Evans' latest revelation, so Faith Evans went on Drink Champ. I have not listened to Drink Champ, so I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, nothing personal about that, but I went to the Revolt Music Conference a couple years ago when my man Rod and, uh, and Karen were in town because they were doing a panel at Revolt. I remember, actually, looking back, man, Combat Jack was on that joint. Um, wow, the dude Taxstone, he was on that panel. Uh, the dude who does drink chats with Noriega was there, and then Noriega showed up and just did his like funny being Noriega thing. But if you're unfamiliar with drink champs, they just start drinking and they do a podcast and it goes as people are drinking. And I noticed that this clip of this revelation that's getting around seemed to be, like, well into the podcast, like a couple hours into the podcast, which would then imply there had been a lot of drinking. And basically, if I could put it delicately, Faith was asked whether Biggie had an oral fixation, shall we say, and when we say whether or not Biggie had an oral fixation, that is to say whether or not Biggie would put his mouth anywhere. Right? That's the question that was asked. And I thought about it. Like, how drunk do you have to be to ask Faith Evans about sex act that Biggie Smalls performed with you and then whether you were married to him or not how drunk do you have to be to answer that question saying yes and to then tell the world that you performed that same sex act on Biggie Smalls. You know, like when you think about it, that's a hell of a concept for a podcast because people walk themselves into it and then, you know, you walk out of there being like, damn, I probably told on myself a lot. I just, like, were y'all curious about that? Because I wasn't. I had never given that any consideration. I never once in my life thought about anything that the two of them did in a bedroom. The closest I needed to get to the thought of Biggie and Faith in bed, I already got it. And you know where I got it? I got it in the One More Chance video. As I recall, Faith was in the bed um, in one of them shiny braziers. And Biggie was sitting on the edge of the bed. Fully dressed and rapping. I was good. 
I was good. I felt like I had been given a window into the intimacy of their lives. That was close enough for me. It really was. It was all I needed. That was it. And I don't blame Faith for giving us more. She's not the one that asked the question. I just want to know why you wanted to know. That's all. I just want to know why you wanted to know. Anyway, let us move on. Thank you. I appreciate the question. Let's see what else we got here. Why is it so easy for us to want any repercussions for anyone who does or says something racist, no matter how old it is, but we want to leave things in the past with anything involving sexual assault or domestic violence, i.e. Leonard McKelvey? So um, I guess the last couple of weeks or so have been, I don't know if like revelatory is the right way to put it with uh, Charlemagne. Um, but things that he has said that like skated when he did say them in the first place about I mean I think it'd be fair to say some kind of disturbing situations that he had been there in the past and then apparently there was some anecdote he told in his book about a time that he got probation for something involving an underage girl and then the paperwork uh from the police looks completely different than the story that he offered and the story that he offered doesn't like necessarily make the most sense but there's a lot that's going on there uh rod i thought made a very interesting point that i hadn't thought about which was the idea of charlemagne as a gatekeeper like the breakfast club is a big thing it's a tastemaker of sorts and so you have people that are going to be apprehensive to say things negative about a gatekeeper because at some point Regardless of what did or did not happen with him, there's a chance they're going to need to try to put the key in that gate. And they don't necessarily want the trouble or whatever it is that comes with that. The other part that happens is, man, in this business, people know each other, right? They know each other on all kinds of levels. They know each other on levels that I may or may not know something about. Like, I don't know. But interpersonal relationships always come into play when these things happen. And folks got their different things that they, you know, kind of do or want to say as it relates to that. But what worried me about the stuff in those interviews with Charlemagne was that, like in one of them, Charlemagne was saying, like, we as men did things back in the day that would now be considered rape. The problem that I have with that kind of idea is almost as though what is or is not rape is fluid based on like societal taste you see what i'm saying like if it if it is rape now then it was rape then right perhaps we did not consider it to be rape before but the thing is not that it is considered to be rape now it would have been rape then and i understand that for some people that'll seem like a subtle distinction but i think it's a very significant one and I also think that it is something that ties into what my man asked on the question about why it is that when something happens with domestic violence or with sexual assault, that people are more inclined to say that we should leave it in the past. Because a lot of that stuff with sexual assault and domestic violence 
I think it's fair to hypothesize that a lot of that sounds familiar to people, right? So like with me, I mean, I think you can look back on these things. I'm pretty consistent and documented on this. When people go on the time machine to get like the racist things that people have said before, I'm not that one. Like I'm not, I don't really get into that game. A big part of why I don't get in that game, by the way, is what people really like to go back and look for is white people that have used that dreaded N-word, and you're not fooling me um, into thinking that white people saying this N-word is such a rarity. You understand what I mean? Like, I find out that a white person has said this N-word is not like, oh, my God, I'm so shocked. I can't believe anybody would say that. Look, a whole lot of white folks got y'all thinking that if we get rid of rap music, and if black people just stop saying the N-word around each other, then the N-word would totally disappear. That that is the only place that it exists. As if white folks ever needed us to tell them it was okay to call us N-words. Like, as if they've ever sat around waiting on some permission. Hey, 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 hey. They say it's cool. Right? When the hell does anybody care what we thought about anything? That's not how it works. So when people like go in the time machine on this, yeah, so you get somebody for something they said when they were a teenager. It was ridiculous that they said it as a teenager. I don't tend to like the answers they give after about like I've matured, I was young and stupid then and da 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 and all that stuff. No, but that don't tell me nothing about how you got to the place where you are right now. And the reason that I'm like, a big part of why I'm, that, that bothers me so much is I got a recognition that you're not just going all of a sudden up and decide I'm just not going to be like that anymore. Like, you got to do a lot of conscious resistance to the imaging that is around you in this society if you are really going to operate in a way that is oppositional to racism. Like, if, I mean, there's so much bombarding you, encourage you down the road to a racist behavior. So when you say, all I, all, what I did was grow up, well, tell me what you did while you were growing up. Like, I want to know what it is that you think you did. Because now this is, like, in the discussion. It is now for play. You know, so no, I'm not, I'm not the guy that's here to hold things against people forever. I'm not one that's big on like the super grim punishment in the end that is some super excommunication, like a full, like the canceling as people talk about it. I'm not one that tends to root for those sorts of things. I'm not. However, when you tell people stuff that don't add up, man, he needs some, people don't want some explanations. And it's fair for people to want those explanations, especially if you exist in a public space and you trade on your reputation. You know, it is absolutely and totally fair for people to do that. But think about the tenor in those Charlemagne interviews. Because the tenor of it, and this is the other place where it gets interesting with what Charlemagne is saying, it's a whole lot of like all dudes. You know, like, didn't he say something about, like, all dudes basically put their hands on a woman or at least choke one? And he talked about when he was 16 and how he choked that woman. I don't feel like all people have done that. Like, I, I got reason to confidently say that not all people have choked their woman before. No. Like, I can, I can tell you, no, that ain't it. That ain't it. And I've had somebody, like somebody I knew who got caught up in a fairly prominent domestic violence situation. 
I talked to him at some point. I didn't talk to him in a minute after it happened. And he was very matter of fact, or as a matter of fact, even the way to put it, he's very nonchalant, in fact, about that. And he referred to it as the time that he, quote, choked his hoe, unquote, and then began to try to explain to me how everybody has had to do that once. No. No. That's, that's not it. So, like, if you want to talk about it, then go ahead and talk about it. But I don't think it's, like, don't be out here throwing everybody else in on this. Because that's, like, that is a diversionary tactic. So what you wind up saying is everybody has done it, which means kind of you have to, like, re-level the playing field. Like, you have to create a curve of sorts if you do that. No, like, if it's you, then you got to claim it is you. Like, that's what you've got to do. And so, for me, going back and just listening to that stuff, really, it's the beyond just simply what is being discussed. It's like cats laughing in the background, you know, about that stuff. Like, those are the things that I listen to on that. I'm like, what's, oh, oh, oh. Like, what exactly um, is going on here? Because you could take a lot of what was talked about in some of that, and it could be discussed in a different way. And it'd be something that actually, it's like, I don't know if useful is the right way to put it. But I do think that the events that have taken place over the last few months have, like, made people look back and say, okay, how are the, what are some of the ways that I have handled situations? And what are some of the things that perhaps I had not considered or maybe I did not realize prior to this that now that I see it, I'm like, okay, like, yo, that probably wasn't cool. No, that wasn't it, you know? You can have that same discussion in that tenor without, I mean, with, without going to some place of, well, come on, man, everybody done done this. No, 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 that doesn't seem to, that, it seems like recollection that isn't really like introspection. Does that make sense? Right? So, like, when you say, um, when you put it as everybody has done this or, or no, that's not the one, the phrase, the, um, the idea of it would be considered rape now, that's not really introspective. Like, that's saying that the rules have changed. Right? The rules ain't got nothing to do with you, no matter who you happen to be. So, yeah, if you ask the question why it is that I think that people are not necessarily inclined to want to, um, like, deal with the past on some of those things, is I think that hits, that hits closer to home for a lot of people's past than, say, hearing about some white person using the N-word. You, you know, like, chances are, if you're a black person in the context we were discussing, that'll make you look back at yourself. The other thing that have people like, oh, okay, maybe I need to rethink this. Appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. So the guy who called the cop after running into the screen, he's the opposite of the Stay Ready All-Stars. Yeah, I don't know if you guys saw this story, but this dude caught a hard screen in a pickup game, and he called the cop. And, I mean, we could get into some of these larger discussions about, like, calling the cops for ridiculous reasons. Um, however, 
I can't understand how it is that you can be like standing around people, people at this gym that presumably you come to, I don't want to say often necessarily, but I'm guessing that you would be back there. And they are looking at you while you are calling the cops. And you have no measure of shame. None. None. That's where I'm thrown off. Like you you like embarrassment doesn't stop you from hanging up the phone. Because I'm sorry, if you got it in you to get up and go get the phone, then that screen was not worth calling the police over. If somebody set a screen on you that's worth calling the police over, somebody else need to be the one calling the police. You you have to be so incapacitated that you can't do it yourself. If this is a matter of calling the police. Right? And if I and now if you want to get to the big part of it, did you look at all that equipment that police officer had on when he came? Like, did you see that? Who knows how that could have gone? Because let me tell you something about you calling the police under circumstance like that. That's a great way to start a fight. Like, he's lucky the fight didn't start before he could finish dialing. That is a great way to start a fight. But imagine if he had done the dialing and then all of a sudden it turned to a fight and then five O show up and it's actually a fight. What might happen then? I don't know. I'm just, I just can't imagine being in a situation like that and thinking to myself, I'm going to call the police. Who does that? Seriously, who does that? Yeah, somebody said, well, I think, well, he's at court side expecting to play again. Who wants to play with him or against him? I will say this, though, man. One time I was playing ball at Carolina at Wollington. Um, and I was talking big noise. I ain't having it. I was like on the side goal. I, I forget who I was there with. I think I was there with dudes from grad school. And I was just out there talking big noise, right? And so this one guy, this white dude, he ain't seem to like it so much. And so he decided that he was going to guard me. And he was like mad aggressive with it. It became very clear to me that he was not trying to stop me from scoring. He just wanted to get physical with me. And I was a bit quicker than him, so I was able to get away from all the stuff that he was trying to do. So then he tried to run the okey-doke. Then he decided to switch with somebody. He's like, yo, you guard him, I'll guard your man. And I'm like, okay, I see what's going on here. Like, that was that was his plan. And so what basically he was hoping for is that we come down on the other end. No, that's what it was. He was guarding me. And then after he was guarding me, he decided to go guard somebody else and then come and try to set screens 
on me since he wasn't guarding me. Uh, since, uh, yeah, that's what that was. He kept trying to set screens. I can't remember, God, I got the breakdown mixed up, but you understand what I'm saying. His game plan was to just try to set screens on me. And I'm like, dog, I know exactly what's going on here. The second that the switch came around, I knew exactly what it was. I knew just where that was going as soon as it came around. I was like, nah, bruh, nah, bruh, you ain't about to be doing this. And I just kept on running around. And I say that to say that people do use screens as a weapon. Like, that is the thing. Like, if it's time to take somebody out on the court, the way you're going to do it is to say screen underrated as a way to take somebody down. That's the plan. Appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. Now that we found out good music didn't have any singles or videos ready to promote and didn't get a bunch of samples clear for the album, we could reasonably say they messed up Tiana Taylor's big moment, right? So my first point of disagreement on this is now that we found out they weren't single, there weren't singles or videos. Hey, you didn't notice there weren't singles or videos when there weren't singles or videos? Like you just got it now? No, there weren't singles and videos. We knew that, kind of. Like, that's where it is. Now, did they mess up Tiana Taylor's big moment? That's a good question. Because I don't know what her record would have sound like had all those samples been cleared. Like, I, I don't know. However, I thought the album that she put out was dope. Like, whatever did or didn't happen in that moment, I don't think it's because there was anything with the album that got released that wasn't good. Like, for most people that I talked to about that record, like, of the Wyoming records, that and the Pusha T are the two best ones. You know? So, the promotion strategy, yeah, that becomes its own thing. I don't really fully understand, by the way, in this age of streaming and just dropping records off out of nowhere and stuff, I don't really like fully get how record promotion goes anymore. Like, I don't understand it in the way that I once did. But I don't think the samples are the issue. I don't. Now, my man here makes a good point. He says, Tiana was the only artist who released that needed the release. The rest were recreational. All these years, she deserved better. Yeah, there is something to that. I also, though, agree with the people that say that she needed to take a bit more agency about what was going on with her career. Like, her people kind of needed to be a little bit more involved in this to make sure that it went the way that she wanted for it to go. Now, Kanye also appeared to be on some crazy, I run everything stuff when it comes to her record and everybody else's from the Pusha T joint. Uh, the picture he decided to put on the record right before that bad boy came out. Like, Kanye was puppet mastering a lot of this stuff. Um, I have no way of knowing for here whether that was for good or bad. I don't. But I also feel like you make the decision to put Kanye in charge of your record, Kanye's going to be in charge of your record. The record's good. Like, that, like, I, you know, I don't, I've never really cared about her music, but her record's good. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else we got here. There's no denying that Stevie Wonder has an amazing amount of skill. Do you think that being blind has helped his career? I mean, what do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean? How would it help his career? What exactly do you mean by blind? 
I just want to make sure I know, you know, where you're coming from on this. That's all. Just making sure I clearly understand the question. And since I don't clearly understand the question, I'm going to move on. My family loves Outkast because of the clean lyrics. How can I or should I tell them that they have more than two songs? You think it's worth the discussion? Dude, what's the second song? Is the second? Yeah, what's the second song? Is the second song the one from Scooby Doo? Uh, the way you move is the second one. The one where he says, let me study how you ride to beat, you big freak. That, that is the, uh, oh, okay. Just let them, let, no need to kill their dreams. Appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. You've mentioned in the past that you sort of lived like a college student for a longer period of time in your late 20s. What was the transition point where you felt like you transitioned from a young adult to an adult adult? When the hell did that happen? I just started making more money. Honestly. Appreciate the question. How do you feel about playing music in the ride share? Drivers offer it a lot. You know, I'm a man of principle in some ways, old school in some ways. And one of my more uh, old school inclinations is if you driving, you get to pick the song. Driver control the radio. Them's the rules. I find myself very interested in what the Uber driver might be playing. The things that they think that other people want to hear when they playing their own jams. I was riding with some dude. He was South Asian of some sort, man. He was playing like a like a pirate um, reggae station. No lie. Irish reggae station. You never know, man. You never know what people are into. I remember one time I got in a, in a ride share with a woman at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the white lady driving the car started playing Sade. And I couldn't tell that she was just trying to come through for the homie, whether that was just what she was doing. Like, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Like, Sade ain't daytime music. You understand? Appreciate the question. Let's see what we got here. Have you noticed the Will Smith rebrand? Yo, here's the thing about the Will Smith rebrand. This isn't a rebrand. This is just kind of a, like, re-emergence. The reality is Will Smith is a little too big to be out here, like, fucking around with us on Instagram. I mean, for a very long time, Will Smith was just too big for that. And he's still that kind of big. Don't get me wrong, but he's not like omnipresent in the ways that he used to be. And so there's something interesting about him in the sense that relatability is the thing that Will Smith had going for him in a way that very few people have had, especially like a black dude. Because the thing about Will is Will was so damn likable to so many people without ever carrying himself as a sucker. You know, which is kind of hard to pull off. Like, he was kind of comfortable in his suburbanness and did everything within that space, and he made it work. And so what has happened, I think, when you see this from Will Smith is what he's now managing to do is shake off all those rumors about, like, the Scientologists 
and us thinking of him in the context of his eccentric children, right? It appears that Will Smith is actually still kind of a regular dude in a lot of ways. But I don't think it's a rebrand because I don't think Will ever really tried to stun on us. You know, but it is interesting to watch. Like, I'm talking to somebody about this. It's very interesting that Will Smith is the cool dad that maybe we thought that Jay-Z would have been. Except here's the thing. There was never a reason to think that Will Smith wouldn't be the cool dad. And not that many reasons to think that Jay-Z would. Yep, there's Will Smith looking like cool dad on Instagram. There's Jay-Z wearing jeans and Tim's on a fucking jet ski. Appreciate the question. See what else you got here. There is a new Whitney doc. You mentioned seeing the one on Showtime. Are you interested in the new one? I actually went and I saw the new one uh, this weekend. So this is a very interesting thing that's going on right now with what we're doing with Whitney Houston, which is there is an embrace of her that is now taking place where I think people kind of look back at what our perception became of Whitney Houston and really, I guess, maybe about like the last 10 years of her life. And there's enough distance from all of that that people are remembering like how much they love Whitney Houston. Like I saw Quest Love posted on Instagram today about how when Whitney's music was out, he didn't like it. And now he gives him more credit. He just wasn't in the right space to appreciate it. Da, da, da. Now, look, I don't really like Whitney Houston's music. She can sing her ass off, though. Like, I'm, there's no denying that one. I just never really liked the kind of music that she made. I mean, it's just too pristine for my taste. Like, Quest was talking in his Instagram post about how, you know, at that time, he just couldn't really get into pristine music like that. I don't think I'm at a point now where I could really get in to, like, pristine music in that way. Like, it's just not me. But her story is a fascinating one. Um, I like There's another documentary that I would like to see about Whitney Houston, which goes more in depth about the relationship that Whitney and her mother had. Like Showtime one kind of touched on it just a little bit, but this documentary that's in theaters was like the first time that I remember seeing Sissy Houston sing. And I get why she also had a certain resentment toward Whitney. She taught Whitney all these things, but also had a resentment because she's like, why couldn't it be me? There's a certain something that Sissy had that Whitney has, Whitney has had a much more powerful voice. But there's still, like, for me, and like the kind of music I like, certain grit to what Sissy could bring that I ain't feel like Whitney had in that same way. She did not. It is a tragic story, though. Um... There's kind of no way around it. There is a tragedy to the story of Whitney Houston. And like Whitney Houston was such a big deal. Like, and I wonder if people who are young can really appreciate what a big deal Whitney Houston was. I mean, Prince, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. If I had to put them in orders of magnitude of stardom at their height, it's Michael Jackson 1, Whitney Houston 2, and then Prince. And it appears that all the people around Whitney 
liked her a great deal. Whitney was just a drug addict. Whitney's brothers were drug addicts. Whitney's father was a hustler who stole from her and then ultimately sued her for $100 million. And everybody wanted the train to keep on running. And nobody seemed to do anything in the face of looking at her and seeing her decline. No one did. But there's something that I think that gets lost in this when they talk about this with her and how people owed it to her for these reasons. I ain't hear nothing about nobody trying to get her brothers off that dope neither. I ain't hear nothing about nobody trying to get Bobby off that dope neither. Only person anybody thought about how it was that they needed to get somebody off dope, it was her. Like, I watched four hours worth of documentaries on Whitney Houston, and I don't think I came across a single thing she did that was her fault in the telling of it. Like, the second documentary kind of touches on it just a little bit, but about the poor job that she did as a mother. And that her daughter said that there were times that she wished that she could kill her mother if nobody could find out about it. Like, there are not a lot of people who are drug addicts and mothers and negatively affect their children in those ways. And we made the documentary about how nobody tried to save you. Like, it's kind of hard to ignore that like, to ignore that observation in it. And yo, man, there's, like I say, there's a lot to Whitney's story, and she went to, through a lot, and a lot that didn't go right for her, she came about honest. She did. But the presentation of Whitney Houston now is interesting and a bit different, but I want you to think about it in this context. The Atlantic... Um, ran an interesting essay about Pusha T and it was about like what is maybe most craven about Pusha T's music is its utter lack of sympathy for the addict. And I mean, at first I heard that I wanted to roll my eyes. I'm like, yeah, there's no sympathy for the addict. Duh. Um, but let us think about how many of us offer criticisms of the news media for the ways that they portray white drug addicts sympathetically and portray black drug addicts as monsters of jokes. There aren't really that many images of black people offering sympathetic portrayals of drug addicts. There aren't very many sympathetic portrayals of crackheads. There aren't. But this is not something exclusively that white people do. And so, it got me thinking as I'm watching this, what is maybe in part that stands out so much about it with Whitney is the sympathy for the addict. But in her case, the sympathy for the addict is very often channeled into an anger toward, in some examples, other addicts. And what's that? You know? What's that? 
Appreciate the question. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on the Evening Jones. You gotta do the same once every couple weeks or so. My man Lance Gilliam handles everything behind the scenes. Thank you. Remember, if you cannot watch the Evening Jones live, once you subscribe, subscribe to the iTunes store. Subscribe at Stitcher Radio. Check us out at SoundCloud. We are also at the Google Play Store. And I will talk to you guys soon enough. Take it easy.